Chapter Two of David Elginbrod by George MacDonald. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit www.librivox.org. David Elginbrod, Chapter Two. David Elginbrod and the New Tutor. Concord between our wit and will where highest notes to godliness are raised, and lowest sink not down to jot of ill. What Languetus taught Sir Philip Sidney, the Arcadia, third eclogue. The house of Turriepuffet stood about a furlong from David's cottage. It was the abode of the laird, or landed proprietor, in whose employment David filled several offices ordinarily distinct. The estate was a small one, and almost entirely farmed by the owner himself, who, with David's help, managed to turn it to good account. Upon weekdays he appeared on horseback in a costume more fitted for following the plough, but he did not work with his own hands, and on Sundays was at once recognizable as a country gentleman. David was his bailiff, or grieve, to overlook the labourers on the estate, his steward to pay them, and keep the farm accounts. His head gardener, for little labour was expended in that direction, there being only one lady, the mistress of the house, and she no patroness of useless flowers. David was, in fact, the laird's general adviser and executor. The laird's family, besides the lady already mentioned, consisted only of two boys, of the ages of eleven and fourteen, whom he had wished to enjoy the same privileges he had himself possessed and to whom, therefore, he was giving a classical and mathematical education in view of the university by means of private tutors, the last of whom, for the changes were not few, seeing the salary was of the smallest, was Hugh Sutherland, the young man concerning whom David Elginbrod had already given his opinion. But notwithstanding the freedom he always granted his daughter and his good opinion of Hugh as well, David could not help feeling a little anxious in his walk along the road toward the house as to what the apparent acquaintance between her and the new tutor might evolve. But he got rid of all that difficulty as far as he was concerned by saying at last, What right have I to interfere, even supposing I wanted to interfere? But I can lip and wheel to my bonny do, and for the rest she maun take her chance like the love of us. And what can but it might just be standing afore him in the very get that he meant to gang? The Lord forgive me for speaking of chance, as given I believed in any sich hovers. There's no fear of the lassie. Good morning to you, Master Sutherland. That's a brow book of balance ye given the land of to my Maggie this morning, sir. Sutherland was just entering a side door of the house when David accosted him. He was not old enough to keep from blushing at David's words, but having a good conscience, he was ready with a good answer. It's a good book, Mr. Elginbrod. It will do her no harm, though it be ballads. I'm in no dread of that, sir. Barons mount have balance, and to tell the truth, sir, I'm no muckle more nor baron in that respect myself. In fact, this very morning at the book, I just thought I was reading a grand godly ballant, and it sounded moaned the worse for the notion of it. You should have been a poet yourself, Mr. Elginbrod. Nay, nay, I ken nothing about your poetry. 
I have read old John Milton o'er and over, though I did not believe the half of it. But, oh, hell, I like some of the bonny bitties at the end of it. Il Penseroso, for instance. Is that who you call it? I can't well by the sight, but hardly by the sound. I, I missed the name of it, and took to the thing itself. Eh, man, I beg your pardon, but it's wonderful bonny. I'll come in some evening, and we'll have a chat about it, replied Sutherland. I must go to my work now. Weel, I'll be very happy to see you, sir. Good morning, sir. Good morning. David went to the garden, where there was not much to be done in the way of education at this season of the year, and Sutherland to the schoolroom, where he was busy all the rest of the morning and part of the afternoon with Caesar and Virgil, algebra and Euclid, food upon which intellectual babes are reared to the stature of college youths. Sutherland was himself only a youth, for he had gone early to college, and had not yet quite completed the curriculum. He was now filling up with teaching the recess between his third and fourth winter at one of the Aberdeen universities. He was the son of an officer belonging to the younger branch of a family of some historic distinction and considerable wealth. This officer, though not far removed from the estate and title as well, had nothing to live upon but his half-pay for to the disgust of his family he had married a Welsh girl of ancient descent, in whose line the poverty must have been at least coeval with the history, to judge from the perfection of its development in the case of her father. And his relations made this the excuse for quarrelling with him, so relieving themselves from any obligation they might have been supposed to lie under, of rendering him assistance of some sort or other. This, however, rather suited the temperament of Major Robert Sutherland, who was prouder in his poverty than they in their riches. So he disowned them forever, and accommodated himself with the best grace in the world to his yet more straitened circumstances. He resolved, however, cost what it might in pinching and squeezing to send his son to college, before turning him out to shift for himself. In this Mrs. Sutherland was ready to support him to the utmost, and so they managed to keep their boy at college for three sessions, after the last of which, instead of returning home as he had done on previous occasions, he had looked about him for a temporary engagement as tutor, and found the situation he now occupied in the family of William Glassford, Esquire, of Turriepuffet, where he intended to remain no longer than the commencement of the session, which would be his fourth and last. To what he should afterwards devote himself he had by no means made up his mind, except that it must of necessity be hard work of some kind or other. So he had at least the virtue of desiring to be independent. His other goods and bads must come out in the course of the story. His pupils were rather stupid and good-natured, so that their temperament operated to confirm their intellectual condition, and to render the labour of teaching them considerably irksome. But he did his work tolerably well, and was not so much interested in the result as to be pained at the moderate degree of his success. At the time of which I write, however, the probability as to his success was scarcely ascertained, for he had been only a fortnight at the task. It was the middle of the month of April, in a rather backward season. The weather had been stormy, with frequent showers of sleet and snow. Old Winter was doing his best to hold young Spring back by the skirts of her garment, and very few of the wild flowers had yet ventured to look out of their warm beds in the mould. Sutherland, therefore, had made but few discoveries in the neighbourhood. 
not that the weather would have kept him to the house had he had any particular desire to go out but like many other students he had no predilection for objectless exertion and preferred the choice of his own weather indoors namely from books and his own imaginings to an encounter with the keen blasts of the north charged as they often were with sharp bullets of hail when the sun did shine out between the showers his cold glitter upon the pools of rain or melted snow and on the wet evergreens and gravel walks always drove him back from the window with a shiver the house which was a very moderate size and comfort stood in the midst of plantations principally of scotch firs and larches some of the former old and great growth so that they had arrived at the true condition of the trees which seems to require old age for the perfection of its idea there was very little to be seen from the windows except this wood which somewhat gloomy at almost any season was at the present cheerless enough and sutherland found it very dreary indeed as exchanged for the wide view from his own home on the side of an open hill in the highlands in the midst of circumstances so uninteresting it is not to be wondered at that the glimpse of a pretty maiden should one morning occasion him some welcome excitement passing downstairs to breakfast he observed the drawing-room door ajar and looked in to see what sort of a room it was for so seldom was it used that he had never yet entered it there stood a young girl peeping with mingling, mingled curiosity and reverence into a small gilt-leaved volume which she had lifted from the table by which she stood he watched her for a moment with some interest when she seeming to become mesmerically aware that she was not alone looked up blushed deeply put the book down in confusion and proceeded to dust some of the furniture it was his first sight of margaret some of the neighbours were expected to dinner and her aid was in requisition to get the grand room of the house prepared for the occasion he supposed her to belong to the household till one day feeling compelled to go out for a stroll he caught sight of her so occupied at the door of her father's cottage that he perceived at once that she must be that at once that must be her home she was in fact seated upon a stool paring potatoes she saw him as well and apparently ashamed at the recollection of having been discovered idling in the drawing-room rose and went in he had met david once or twice about the house and attracted by his appearance had had some conversation with him but he did not know where he lived nor that he was the father of the girl whom he had seen End chapter two